Podcast that came to an important conclusion today. When presented with a novel and seemingly complex event happening in the world, one option is to read as much about it as you can get your hands on, trying to figure out all the different ways people are interpreting the event, combining the insights of 20 or more different analysts and academics and politicians and commentators into something that approaches a complete picture of the situation in an attempt to simply understand the basics of what happened and how events like this one might be avoided in the future. You could spend a few hours sincerely trying to understand something and come away not really all that certain that you really know any more than you did at the start, but at least you gave it the old college try. But what this podcast concluded today is that if you did all of that in good faith effort to just know a little bit more than you did before, you are an incredible sucker, because there is a much simpler alternative. You could just say, for example, go woke, go broke, in the process blaming the collapse of the nation's 16th largest bank on some diversity trainings and a few tweets by someone you've decided is the VP of equity at some bank, but like the dumb and bad kind of equity rather than the money and banking kind of equity, and you will have effectively communicated all you need to communicate to the vast majority of your audience who will think you are awesome and persuasive and hilarious and will want to make you the president of the United States because you didn't make them feel bad about not knowing the immensely complicated obscurities that undergird reality and instead told them how awesome they are for already knowing everything they needed to know without having to raise so much as an eyebrow. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. At least I think that's him. He's in a strange <laughs> t-shirt tonight. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here too. How are you doing, Lori? Uh, Lori's in. Daylight savings. I, I'm I'm sick. I think because it's daylight savings. Tonight is Monday, March thirteenth, twenty twenty three. It's a Monday. It is, in fact. The first full day of the new time regime, and we are all suffering its ill effects, at least here in Virginia. But I don't know how the time change has affected you down there near the equator. So it, it hasn't, uh, but, you know, I work from home. I have a pretty easy going thing. So, you know, they say whenever they make these changes, there's always like an uptick in road accidents. I wonder if some people didn't make it home because of our gimmick. It's uh, it's really I'm sure stupid. That's I, as uh, I mean, we talk about this literally. We talk about it every year, twice because a year. It continues to be a problem. We can... keep talking about your bullshit problems that won't go away. <laughs> this is one that could actually be fixed really also, easily. Wasn't there more momentum for this a year or two ago? It seems like no. There was momentum to keep it on this time, which is wrong. Right, but right. that's and we one of the times we spoke about this. I think we determined like they did this back in the seventies and, and that didn't work, right? Like yeah. the so like why would they go back to the thing that 
we already have history. Because they're short-sighted, morning people, extrovert assholes. That's why. There's more. I I read another couple of pieces because, of course, it's just a cycle, news cycle churn thing where every four or six months you get the same stories about the stupid time change. Right. And so today I was reading another story about how, like, the it's actually – your brain and your stupid body prefers to wake up with the sun and it does better things for your entire situation there to like, and I like whatever, like it, it takes a certain kind of, I mean, to use a gross word, certain privilege to be able to wake up with the sun and then like, you know, allow your natural circadian that doesn't rhythms. That sound like privilege to me. That sounds like torture. Yeah. But the, the point of the article was that like, we should not go to permanent, Daylight savings time because it is, for whatever reason, it's better for your body to have that early morning sun at the time that you wake up rather than being forced to wake up in the dead of night. There's a really good – the Washington Post did a really good – you know they do those little interactive – like as you scroll along, it changes. those are nice. They did a really good one about how like in winter we're supposed to go to bed early and sleep in. Like it's – like that's it's on purpose. Like we're supposed to do that. So by switching it later in winter, it'd be more fucked up than it was two days ago. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever. There's nothing we can do about it. The stupid Congress passed it out of the Senate last year, and then it never got a vote in the House. And apparently there's more momentum. That's the thing that I read today. There's more momentum for it again this year to get oh, it out of, the, okay, so maybe out of the Senate, and then yeah. maybe the House will actually do it. No word yet on what Biden would do if uh, presented with this particular bill. <laughs> you think this is would rise to the level of where he would veto it? Like, why would he care? Just like whatever, I'll sign whatever. I don't know. <laughs> if he cares about our well-being and they want to keep it at this bullshit time, he would veto it, or he would do better and he would do the thing where you just don't sign it. What's that called? The pocket, pocket. veto. Yeah. Yes, because he would be too out of sorts to remember to sign it. Not because of his diminishing mental capacity, but just because of... No, because of his diminished mental capacity due to the time change. Right. Right. Although I, I can't imagine that there, the fault lines here are political, right? It, it seems like you, you would get enough... Because, I mean, the the last time it was pushed, it was uh, Rubio, was it? Like, from Florida? Yeah, like, it was think, Rubio, yeah. Yeah, there isn't a <clears throat> one side versus the other kind of thing. It seems like a preference thing, or lifestyle thing the people that are do stuff in the morning like it's good versus evil those are the lines <laughs> <laughs> anyway i know that's boring because we talk about it every two or three times a year now Abe, did you watch the oscars last night big I did. Uh, big big night in hollywood yeah i did uh usually i will watch it the day after but i was like ah i'm not doing anything now and it was on and so i watched it so we had the good fortune of starting it 20 minutes late. Like we recorded it so we could you know, catch it from the very yeah. beginning. Yeah. And we wanted to watch The Last of Us last night as well. We didn't want to have to choose. We wanted to do both things. And the good news is about something like an Oscars telecast is that it is extremely overstuffed with commercials and also bullshit that yeah. I yeah, don't need to like, watch. To be fair to things – the stuff that's the bullshit, like we we skipped a lot of it. That stuff's fun when we're not on a time crunch. Sure, like I mean, it's, I, it would have been fine. I almost never want to watch any of the musical performances at the Oscars. Like I, I, wanna, I, I just like don't the care. Montages, those are fun. 
We sure. skipped all those due to time constraints. We skipped a couple. Anyway, the point is we started 20 minutes late, and we had caught up by the time 9 o'clock rolled around. So then we just paused that and jumped over to The Last of Us. We right. watched that for 45 minutes. And so now we're 45 minutes behind. And by like 11 o'clock, we had caught up you again. You caught it up was, before uh, they get to the... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, caught up before the end. It was great. Yeah, there's a, so this is... Uh, skipping through commercials and what just like the skipping through commercials and skipping through like I I don't need to see Lady Gaga for five minutes you you missed the uh, Indian dancing no we watched watched that no Bob Bob was distracted he missed the best part of the whole night that was pretty neat I've never heard of that song before it was so fucking good the RRR movie not not to I threw that on late one night going to sleep and watched like an hour of it it's not the same on a stage the stage made it perfect I mean, I disagree. Silence. It was did, way. Did you see it was, that it was, drop? It was way cooler in the movie when they had all of the cool visual effects going and making it look far more dramatic. But whatever, it's, uh, it looked like a fun movie. It's also like three hours long. All the goddamn movies <laughs> yeah. are too long. <laughs> That's not a, as a I discovered this in this past week when I I binged through a bunch of the best Bob picture nominees. Very hard this week. So, what was your uh, impression of the Oscars overall, Abe? Eh? A good professional production? Yeah, I thought it was a nice, straightforward, not a noteworthy kind of thing. No one's like assaulting anyone. There's no like snafu with the winners at the end. It was just beginning, middle, and I listened to the music. You know, the the Lady Gaga, the Rihanna second yeah. appearance. Boy, she's doing a lot. Pregnant. Also, Look at also her. didn't need to watch Rihanna perform. <laughs> I, we skipped that as well. And that was fine. And then the. The Indian songs, and I also like whenever they they do a little. Uh, hey, this you know throughout the show they do the best picture. Here's a snippet, you know. Right. Yeah. Big fan of movies. Good. Let's talk about the movies and the everything everywhere like sweep almost sweep was like uh, surprising. I was reading this article a couple of days ago or just recently, uh, and somebody was saying that uh, there's no chance this movie is too weird. You, I said that. Are you referring to my blog, Abe? Is that what you're doing here? It was so, Bob. I want to talk about that movie, and we can do that uh, now, well, I guess. Yeah, you are right. We, it is very, very weird. show where like, the interesting part is now, and then I could maybe go to bed because I don't feel good. Yeah, I don't feel great either. It's going to be, like I said, short show. You can didn't I, say that. I did. I'm going to move quick here. All right. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Like I said, I watched. I ended up uh, catching all eight or eight out of the ten Best Picture nominees. By the time we got to eight o'clock on Sunday night, I posted a quick uh, last-second Oscars preview blog. Bogus rankings for any Avatar fans. This is a terrible list. Number ten. Uh, <laughs> number ten. Losing out uh, to movies that Bob has I not dare watched. You, I this dare is you ridiculous. to quibble with anything that I said in my quick capsule review of. Avatar 2, Literally, The Way of Water. Hey, I haven't seen these two movies, but I know they're better than Avatar, so they're... <laughs> <laughs> we already talked about Avatar at some length. We don't yeah. have to go into that again. But yeah, if I were... I, I, I ranked the movies by my proprietary formula determining the filmic achievement and greatness, which I did not uh, deign to explain. And then I, I made my list there. So 10 was Avatar, 9 was The Fableman's Top Gun... Maverick was in there at number eight, which I that I, wasn't number one. No, it's the one that I, I like. I wanted to win, but I also knew there was no chance in hell that it possibly could. Okay. Also, as a as a film snob at heart, like which I truly am, I cannot rate that incredibly stupid movie any higher than I did in my list, even though 
I acknowledged that I fucking loved it and right. thought it was awesome. It was get, the best movie of the year. Best picture. Yeah, and as I said, if there were any justice in this world, this stupid and awesome movie would win best picture. But the Academy is bullshit, and awards are given on the basis of what the Academy believes the giving of the award says about the Academy. Sounds like you're on the Academy. Or what people will think about the Academy. What they don't understand is that no one actually cares about the Academy at all besides those pompous assholes themselves, and they should just give the award to Maverick, and Tom Cruise should fucking bust through the roof of the Dolby Theater and accept the award on a bungee cord before being yoinked on out of there by a passing 747 which by the way is basically how jimmy kimmel entered yeah the i mean theater that night which was funny that that was i posted it and then that's like exactly what happened right on, on on that point uh somebody mentioned it i didn't notice it while watching the oscars but they said there was like an absence of your celebrities like there weren't that many of them it seemed like a lot of people just didn't show tom cruise included it's not clear if the Jimmy Kimmel people knew ahead of time that he wasn't going to show, but it seemed like yeah, well, he, he, he was Tom make Cruise. Some jokes. I don't remember Tom Cruise usually making these these events. But if like, he has, I mean, first of all, he had a very popular movie. It wasn't going to win Best Picture, but like downstream, you know, the sound or some other thing, you know, to support your people, like. Well, give the guy a fucking nod. If you want him to show up at the Academy Awards, nominate him for a movie. And, like, he sh- first of all, he should have won for Magnolia. He uh, was fantastic. He should have won this. I don't even remember who won the Supporting Actor Award for 1999, but he should have won for that performance. He was spectacular in it. But whatever. Like, just nominate the guy. I know he doesn't do, like, Oscar bait kind of movies. But first of all, he's never been in a poorly written movie in uh, in a very long time anyway. Like, he picks projects statement. that are spec. I mean, like, I'm not saying that they're, like, very well written, but they're never poorly written. Not right? too many clunkers. Like, yeah. Right. He operates at a bare minimum of a B plus in terms of just the the like the people that he's able to surround himself with, and and the sorts of movies that he's able to produce. Like, doesn't mean that they're great, uh, you know, achievements in filmic greatness or whatever. My stupid thing was, but they're perfectly adequate. And compared to a lot of the other shit that gets awarded, like why not just throw him a bone, and then you get the most famous guy in the world to show up to your goddamn award show if it's important to you. Right. Anyway, uh, moving on. From Maverick, which should have won, but didn't. I mean, it won like I think it won the Sound Award. Yeah, yeah. it did, and it uh, should have. And, and as the Sound Awardees are walking up to the to the stage to accept their and, and give their speech or what have you, the voiceover lady is like, "They went to different airplane places and just recorded the sound <laughs> of jet engines." It's like, well, way to ruin the magic, lady. Like, so what you're saying is they didn't actually do anything of consequence here. They just went and recorded some jets making loud noises and then played was, them at the right moment. It was, like all night, the stupid lady was like, "They went to college and studied things, which no one cares about." But that was particularly demeaning. Like, right. look at the achievement in sound. They they just recorded it. They just, by the way, uh, on that point, when this voiceover person is doing the spiel as they're walking up to the podium, I think it was Michelle Yeoh who won Best Actress. Yeah, and yeah, they, that was a good one. An unnecessary comment were like. Despite what it looks like, she's got no martial arts she's experience. Like, yeah. like, she has no formal martial arts here's training this, whatsoever. Here's this and, actress and I who just isn't done, actually good at the thing she's right. pretending to be right. good at. I just got done acting. watching this movie, yeah. and I was like, 
Yeah, that sounds about right, actually. Like, uh, she didn't appear to be some sort of judo master watching her uh, perform these acts as a 60-year-old woman on right. film. Like, yeah, whatever. And I wonder, is, is that like a – do you think that uh, the participants have any input in the blurb or is that just like their whole thing? We're gonna, no, know. I'm sure that they have – that there's the, the writers of the program and the, the various PR people probably uh, work together to put those sorts of things okay. together. Uh, all right, moving on to a movie that I hadn't had not yet seen, but did in fact watch this week, uh, "Women Talking," which is a movie based on a novel which was inspired by true events. And uh, we talked about it. We Abe talked about, about it when it Abe saw it. Yeah, and. It's sort of one of these like very cloistered religious communities. I can tell you, it was very easy. Like when we were watching it, and I was doing my schoolwork, yeah. I was not tempted to watch this movie. I was like, "This is perfect." If I if I want to pay attention to something completely not this. This is about like uh, Amish type the, the Mennonites, yeah. and the men have been using some sort of cattle knocker outer, like yeah. a. a <laughs> Something that they use on the cows to make them go to sleep. They've been using that on the women in order to have their way with them. And not just uh, one. Like many of these dudes are doing right. this it's, scam. Uh, you might even call it they have uh, like a, a system in place, some sort of systemic yes. anti-woman thing going on here. Something like that. And yes. eventually they get found out. And all of the men are in the context of the story at the moment. They have uh, a handful of them have been arrested, and all of the rest of them have right. gone into town to help uh, expedite the process of bailing them out. And in the meantime, the women get together in the barn and have a vote and then a lengthy conversation about what they are going to do with themselves as a response to the men being revealed to, to be doing this thing. And it comes down to either stay and fight or leave are the, are the right. two options that they come back with. So like stay and fight and change the way uh, that our system operates here or uh, take off before the men get back. Wasn't there a third? I mean, it's been a couple of months since I watched it. Wasn't there like a third one where just like accept it? Like just stay? Right. The third one was just forgive, God, but nobody you know, voted for that one. This uh, right. system so, that these dudes have in place, you know. According to God, uh, you got to forgive them or else no heaven for the women who have been harmed. Right. Those, those, those women lose out in the first round of voting. There's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not a first-past-the-post system, yeah. so they, yeah. they eliminate that, that poorly received option and then move on to conversation. And the first big set piece and my main sort of criticism of the movie as a work of art is that that first major set piece with the women presenting their different opinions on what should happen plays very much as like a dialogue in a feminist philosophy course between two competing sets of ideas right. more than it actually plays as a honest conversation between actual characters who might represent something like real human beings. But uh, th this movie and The Whale both could have been plays, right? There are all these like one setting or well, the whale, the whale was a play, right? right? Adopted from the guy's play and then made into a movie. This was a novel that was adapted into a film that very much plays exactly like a play right. on the stage. Yeah. yeah, like it, 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 it could have been like a single set, basically, where it's just this barn and then a couple of like places for 
other characters to have things happen to them slightly outside of the barn or what have you. Right. It's just I've always and this is something I've struggled with in my writing uh, when I'm trying to write fiction is I often want to have my characters have these sorts of philosophical conversations with one another. But it is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off having it sound like a natural conversation between two actual human beings. Oh, you should talk to Aaron Sorkin about that. Right. That's what I mean. Usually <laughs> yeah. it sounds like shit. Uh, How dare sounds you. great. And it, it's just hard to make it sound natural coming out of the mouths of... Just make everyone have gone to Harvard. Right, but that's the other thing, is that further, these women who are systematically denied an education and aren't even taught to yeah. read and write, yeah. and have, have all they really, their entire knowledge base is what they've memorized out of the Bible from the things that they've had spoken to them, along with the necessities that they have of like how to uh, maintain the, the farm, right, to keep the homestead going. Right. And they instead come across as like these incredibly learned and erudite yes. and well-spoken individuals, which sounds just further ridiculous on top of it. And there's also, and I, I, I will also complain about this moment, which is that there's a moment, because there's a character in this movie who's a trans character, and the trans character is willfully mute. He will not speak. This is a, a person who was a female. She went. She was raped. And then they go to some pains. There's a line of dialogue that feels wildly out of place where it's like, oh, and she didn't become trans because of the rape. It just right. happened to uh, – it was precipitated by it but not caused by it certainly or right. something like, like it's that level of awkward trying not to say that they're only trans because they were raped thing right. when like uh, – well, that's – that's what we're dealing with here, so I don't know what you're trying to hide. But that character does not talk until a moment in the film when one of the women address him by his chosen name. I forget what it is, like Wilbur or something. It's not Wilbur. But like a person says, oh, Wilbur, what do you think? And like, uh, first of all, what's Wilbur doing there taking care of the kids if Wilbur's now a dude? Uh, right. They got some strange gender politics here in this uh, women talking movie, obviously. But I assume uh, since they weren't uh, respecting their choice and they weren't calling him by the name, like – they probably were on the outs with the dudes, the rapey dudes, right? So he wasn't going to go help bail one of them out. Like, what would be the point of that? I know. But, like, to have the person suddenly decide that they're going to talk after being willfully mute when someone finally uses their name is, like, this weird, like, it's a it's like flashing— like Silent Bob. It's a flashing neon sign of moralizing nonsense in a movie that is already sort of, like, super freighted with this obvious— big dialectical questions going on between uh, different philosophical ideas. Like it just it feels awkward and weird, and it just doesn't belong in the goddamn movie. It's, a, it's interesting that uh, the Oscar people did not have those problems because uh, the adapted screenplay Oscar went to Women Talk and Sarah Polly, right? So like yeah. the stilted language from here and there wasn't an issue? Apparently not. With all of these sorts of things, all of these movies that are more about ideas than they are about characters and story, it ends up feeling empty to me. It feels like an intellectual exercise more than it feels like uh, I just can't get involved in the dramatic narrative of the thing. And so, like, it's interesting. I I appreciated watching the movie. I thought it was cool. Yeah. I thought the performances were awesome. The Mara, whichever of the Mara sisters is in this movie, was really good in it. Uh, a couple of the other uh, performances were really good, too. 
There's a criminal under use of Francis McDormand, yeah. who speaks like twice in the movie and then just looks severe uh, for the rest of it. But yeah, it's fine. It's a good movie. Uh, number seven on my list. I had my problems with it. Uh, number six, I stuck Elvis on there. That was one not? of the two movies that were pretty much shut out, right? I mean, Banshees of Inishirin, which was higher up on your list, also didn't get anything. Right. Again, we talked about uh, Elvis at some length. We don't have to go into that again. I put Tar at number five, even though I did not yet see Tar. I suspect that uh, it will end up even higher, given my feelings about the rest of the movies. Like, if I like it at all, I suspect that I'm going to like it a great deal. I did like Tar. Yeah, Tar is good. I mean, basically, it's a, you know, like the the, the meat. uh, Maybe you won't like it. Maybe it's a little heavy-handed at times, but like it's kind of like me too, but like a woman doing it. Right, and she's like... She's a compelling character, apparently, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it's not like it's not a political screed. It's no, not like no, the no. she the she no. said movie or something no. like that. Like, no. it's an actual movie about an actual compelling character. Right. And like, if you like Kate Blanchett, then I think that you probably will be disposed to liking this movie. If you don't care for Kate Blanchett, you probably won't. Who doesn't right. care for Kate Blanchett? Yeah. She's great. Yeah, she's pretty great. Number four on my list, I put the eventual Oscar winner. They won seven awards last night. They swept. All of the important awards, everything, everywhere, all at once, which I went ahead and just bought because it was not available to stream uh, on any of the subscription services that we subscribe to. And I had a feeling that I would like this movie a great deal and that uh, I would be not disappointed to end up owning it so I could I could watch it again. And I, yes, I am glad that I bought it. It's it's a weird fucking movie, and that's that's the bulk of what I said in my right. review of it. It's weird, and it's weird to the point of being random, and its randomness is cute to the point of being cloying sometimes. And its randomness doesn't always serve the story in a way that I think randomness desperately needs to serve the story if it's going to mean anything. It's not an absurdist thing in the way that these guys' first movie was an absurdist thing. Their first, was movie their first movie was Swiss Army Man. Uh, I didn't know that. With Paul Dano and oh, uh, Harry Potter guy. Oh, that was wonderful. Yeah, I really liked that movie. And its absurdism worked within that world. This is not an absurdist movie. And so all of the random shit that doesn't appear to tie to anything didn't quite work for me in the same way. Uh, did you see did you see Turning Red, Abe? I no, did not. It is the Disney not Pixar but Disney animation came out within the last couple of years. Oh, it came out this year. It was nominated. It, oh, last yeah. year or this year or something it's like that. It's the same movie. Is this the Similar one where the movie, kid yeah. like where they're nervous they turn red? It's a it's a story about a girl and like the allegory is that she's getting her period, but okay. she has these powers that she can't control. There's an, a mother that is very controlling. There's lots of Asian there imagery. Are Asians. And there's <laughs> like at the end, spoilers, there's like this this plane of existence. And, like, whether or not she will go through this plane of existence. It's the same movie. Oh, wow. But no IRS sex dungeon. No, but there is a raccoon. And no no leaping onto a butt plug in order to <laughs> that you know of who knows what they what they animated real small you know what what's weird uh is in retrospect i wonder what people will think of this movie in like 5 years because not only did it 
basically sweep at the Oscars. I mean, that's spectac- I mean, I don't know the last time so many of the major awards went to one movie. It was like a Titanic. Yeah. Critically acclaimed and a commercial success, like over a hundred million for this like little small budget whatever movie. Like every category it checks off. And if the Oscars ever decides to release the vote results, maybe like ten years later or something, they should do that. I want to know what the gap is, because I think this movie won by comfortable margins in each category. It seems like it and I I enjoyed the performances. I thought they were fine. I thought that like there's some uproar about Jamie Lee Curtis beating out uh, what's her name from from Black Panther. And although I thought I thought the uh, issue should have been with uh, the Banshees of Incheon supporting actress, like she should have won it. I mean, Marvel, oh, she was spectacular. Yeah, like she, a Marvel she absolutely movie? should have won it in any in any other normal year. Yeah. That role is like the obvious Oscar winner in a in a supporting role kind of right. thing. Uh, she was fantastic and sort of the heart, the rational heart of the the Banshees movies that we'll that we'll talk about in a minute here. Yeah. Angela, like, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. she played dress up in front of a green screen right. for fifteen minutes. It like, should what be. Are, I didn't think that Jamie Lee Curtis was particularly spectacular or anything, but she has this whole career, and like, it's a, it, it, the option is either you give it to the spectacular performance in the. Irish period piece movie, or you give it as a as a life achievement no, award or whatever. Which I think and they, that, that's that what was, they ended up doing. I think that was the thrust of the complaining with Angela Bassett because she too is making a similar argument. Like I was in that other movie like thirty years ago, I didn't get it, and uh, here I am again, and I didn't get it. Yeah, I, well then you know don't be in a stupid Black Panther two <laughs> Marvel movie, be in something else. Like I, this. I will say the award is being nominated. I I don't think any other. Uh, person has been uh, nominated for best whatever from a car Marvel movie, right? I mean, like that, right. that alone she's the is... First, I think she's the first acting nomination right. to come out of the entire MCU. So take that one. Yeah, don't, you weren't like in the running to win the whole thing. That'd be... Also, like, don't actually care about winning an Oscar yeah. because they're pretend. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It just uh, was unfortunate for her because the camera that had, you know, the Jamie Lee shot, you know, when they're about to announce was also capturing Angela Bassett and you can kind of see she wasn't... Right particularly happy it's not easy to lose gracefully on television i never hold that against anybody it's just a plot uh, what do you mean so they say you some other name lose. good job you didn't lose anything yeah. Yeah. yeah but you're sitting there around the people who most want you to win like it's not even about you at that point it's about the fact that you're sitting there with your family and they all wanted you to win right. and so now you have to pretend on their behalf and hope oh, that they're I pretending on your behalf <laughs> like it's this big awkward thing again i don't hold it against anybody for not being able to mask the their true emotions in that one awful moment on on television in front of everyone i do <laughs> that's fine i can't overstate how weird this movie is and i do not believe that the vast majority of people who watched it understood it or finished it and like that's the the you said that you want to see the the breakdown of how the votes went yeah. i want to see the percentage of academy voters who actually finished this fucking movie <laughs> because i don't think it's actually very high and i don't believe them if they just say that they did this is a movie uh this is the last movie i can I think I ever want to watch with my mother, and no, uh, 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 that's uh, accepting, of course, like all of the uh, discussing pornography and and like uh, other inappropriate sexual uh, situations that I don't want to find myself witnessing right. with my mother. But like my mother, she's very bad at watching movies. Is, yeah, she's not great at watching movies. 
because she gets like three minutes in and it's like, what is going on here? What? what who is this? There's a very good little meme out there that's like character steps on screen. My mother says, who's that? Right. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know. We're watching this for the first time, too. But like the idea of watching this with anybody who does that, who says just what the hell is going on in this movie yeah. uh, 15 times in the first 25 minutes that a movie is happening rather than just letting it unfold in front of you. Like, I just don't, right. we, we cannot watch this movie together because uh, further, no amount of like pressing pause and trying to explain it is going to make anything any clearer. Right. It's, it's just sort of a movie that you have to allow to wash over. you. It's like, yeah, you know, it's multiverse and they do that. Yeah. If they do a weird thing, it can they create a path and they can go get new skills or whatever. It's like right. yeah, this is a very stupid movie. Right. They're ultimately. like the two rocks talking to each other, you know, so very. Yeah, it's kind of oh, that's to- when that's when I liked the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Those two rocks talking. Those were that was the best part to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting movie and I will enjoy revisiting it. It's weird to me that similar to the women talking thing, there's another scene where we are centering how important it is to acknowledge someone's identity in a way, right? Like it's, it makes it very much of this moment, of this cultural moment where the the girl has this freak out over the fact that her mother won't tell her father that the daughter is a lesbian, right. which I get. Like, yeah, fine. It's important to people. Especially it's just weird to me that we make this... A big portion of the movie is centered around validating this person's identity, and then we get to the end of the movie. It's like, ah, fuck you for validating my identity. Now you think it's about you, don't you, mom? Uh, you can't win. It, I mean, it's more about connecting, right, than validating. So yeah, just... but that's the thing. It's also a mother-daughter movie. Right. And, like, sorry, my mom can't win. There's nothing she can do. <laughs> I feel bad. She listens. I'm sorry. Like, I'm like, your hair's too short. You yep. should grow it. But did this movie... And then she grows her hair. I'm like, your hair's too long. Yeah. Why is your hair so long? <laughs> like, she just can't win. Did this movie win because it was actually the best picture? Or, or like, I mean, not that that matters exactly. Yeah. But didn't it fulfill all of the various sort of political points that need to be fulfilled in this particular cultural moment for this to just be the movie of the year? I and think, it doesn't matter. I think it just checked a lot of boxes. So you can take that. That point, and it would be accurate. But also, the way that the way that I see it is, if if the Oscars are they're trying to reward, like they're trying to send a message, like okay, so you have a movie that's not a, it's an original, right? It's not some part of franchise like Creed Eleven, right? It's not right. a Marvel movie. It's not a big budget movie. It's just a simple movie made by these people who had maybe one or two movies before. It was a spectacular success, basically slowly building. I think opening weekend was like. 500,000, right? It was kind of one of those slowly built movies. Word of mouth got people out to see it. And then they win all these Oscars. So it's like, it's like, I think a good like story from that vantage point. And I think it's more that than anything else because like none of the movies, and that's generally the case. I think there are outlier years where it's like clear which is the best picture. Most of the time, it's like two or three movies people will gravitate toward to say, okay. Banshees of Inishirin and Tar and everything everywhere all at once. If you give it to any one of those three, uh, or my James Cameron movie, which I know was out of the running, but uh, like if you give it to like one of three movies, you could do that every year. Like was No Man Land really that great the other year, or Coda the other year, or Sh- I mean I don't like Shape of Water, but like there was a lot of years where it's just like just give it to somebody. And if you're gonna sure. give it to somebody, 
it's a worthy movie in that respect. All right, and then one last point on this on this movie that I'll make is it's weird to me to award this to give these guys the directing award when if I have to pick a part of the movie that doesn't work for me, it's sort of the, the it's a hard thing to point to, but there's something ineffable about the directing of this movie that sort of didn't work for me. Right. And if if there's something that I really believe about this movie, despite having none of the knowledge necessary uh, to make this claim, it's that this movie was made. All of its success was found in the editing room. I have no reason to believe that other than the evidence before my eyes of watching the film. Right. But, like, this could have been a complete fucking disaster right. of a movie. And instead it wasn't. It actually sort of worked. And I think that that was basically all done in the editing room. And I'm sure that they had a great deal of in input on that process. And so, uh, you know, I'm not dumping on them entirely, the, the, these Daniels guys. I just... It's weird to me that they get awarded the director movie, uh, the director award, when to me, like the one thing that was sort of holding this back was some of the choices that were made uh, in the script and in the directing. But, but it was yeah, interesting and good movie. I, I, th I think directing and best supporting actress basically it's kind of like it rode the, the coattails of the movie overall. Like basically, there was just such enthusiasm for all right. the major categories that it just kind of won that section. Yeah, and the, the kid from the, the, the grown up. Goonie, short yeah. round. The yeah. the grown up Goonie winning the thing was the very heart heartwarming moment of the night, and and he was good. And he was yeah, good. he was great. Yeah. He was like great in it. The, yeah, the, that's the, not... the, the daughter was really good. I mean, I, you know, they gave it to Jamie Lee Curtis because it's you know, I guess an achievement because she'd been the around costumes. forever. But the, the... those costumes, if that hadn't won, yeah. That's bullshit, but it did. So yeah. there's no. Safe. She was good too, and and it was again good performances all around. Good movie. I'm just not sure that it was the best movie of the year because uh, Maverick was. Also, so. it's it's interesting to me. And now this is stupid culture war shit. We had a couple of moments watching this where it felt like these Asian folks were giving sucker to the conservative movement and i think conservatives are too stupid to see it a lot of the time but like when uh, and this is just a coincidence of phrasing but when michelle yo gets up there after uh winning the best actress and she's like don't let anybody tell you that you're past your prime which is a reference to, to cnn's don lemon right, taking haley. a dump on nikki haley yeah. which is hilarious that like this is now we're in like oh liberal hollywood right. <laughs> but michelle yo is getting up there and sort of in a backward sort of way identifying with nikki haley I, I, that was that was amusing to me i think it overlaps that but uh it is i assume a very common issue that women face right especially in hollywood yes, yes. right certainly so but yeah, it, yeah, but it, it that tracks. was specifically yeah. a call yeah. out to right. the Don Lemon thing from a few weeks ago, right? And, and, and then uh, also, yeah, the, uh, all of this talk of the American dream, right. like the the fact that Short Round gets up there, and forgive me, I just would rather not mispronounce his name, which I definitely Key would if I tried to say Short Round. It. So you're doing great. Uh, he gets up there and he's like, you know. I spent a year on a boat. I came out of labor camps or whatever the fuck it is he says in his he speech. Said refugee yeah, camp. Yeah, a refugee yeah. camp. And and like this is the American dream. This is what it's all about. Like that's something that that entire audience you could feel their buttholes clenching when he started saying that because that phrase is specifically not acceptable in certain circles anymore. Really? We don't you talk don't think about people talk about the American dream. You think that's like a contentious issue? People are absolutely it is and he's, certainly in the last few years because the American dream has been 
denied too many people of color. It's been denied. It, it, it's an American dream only for uh, white privileged people, right? Right, but and it, it's yeah, and and they, they can br- uh, bring examples of those denials. But when whenever there's a success, uh, you would think there would be no objection to that. Also, uh, I, he didn't go into it, but you know, both uh, he Kiwei Kwan, I want to say the name if that's correct. Uh, short round is fine. Short round. And, and Michelle, uh, yo, I think they're both Vietnamese uh, backgrounds. Maybe, mm. uh, it, you know, d- d- wasn't there like a, a war? America was involved in Vietnam, and, th- and the reason why he was a refugee. Is Michelle yo Vietnamese? I didn't no, realize. I think he grew up no, like in Malaysia Vietnamese. or whatever. But I think let's, he's let's Google that of shit. Vietnamese background. But I know short round, as you want to call him, is from Vietnam. And when he was a refugee, he must have been a product of, like, right after the war ended, and then they had the little issue with Cambodia. So Well, Cambodia had, had a real problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they started killing a lot of people. I was just—I mean, I'm not trying to make a big stink of it. I was yeah. just amused by this sort of—there was a bit of an American conservative gloss yeah, to the proceedings did. as a result of these awards going to people who— we're singing the praises of dreaming and having your dreams come true. And it's just not the sort of thing that we, it's not the sort of thing that we'd be as quick to accept if Austin Butler got up there and <laughs> started talking about it. In like in an Elvis accent. Yeah. All right. Number three, all quiet on the Western front, which I, I, think, I actually really liked this movie. Did you see this? It's yeah, on Netflix. I, I really did like it. And that do, do, do that little thing wanted that, the best whatever Oscar. Right. So I basically the only thing I said about this movie in my little capsule review was that I really liked the soundtrack. Yeah. And then the soundtrack wins for best score. Yeah. Which I was very pleased with. I'm going to play it here because uh, your rendition of it, uh, while convincing, <laughs> Abe, is not doesn't give us the full feeling that you can get from it when actually hearing it. It's great. It sounds very modern and like almost out of place. But when watching this movie, it very much works every time it pops up. Further, I don't believe that they only spent $20 million on this movie. I have no idea what Netflix's incentive would be to lie about how much money they spent on this movie. Uh, but every little piece of information I could find insisted that they only spent $20 million on it. And I swear, like, if you told me they spent $20 million on the makeup, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that <laughs> checks out. I believe that. Because this movie looks spectacular. Look, yeah. I mean, it's about people dying. And it sucks. By the way, it's a testament to my terrible memory that an hour and 20 minutes into this movie, I was like, Wait, I read this book like recently, like because like some of the characters' names were like familiar, and it, the title is really from the book, but it, I didn't make the connection until halfway through. 
title is really from the book. To say nothing of the fact that it's like one of the most famous books of yeah, the last even I read 120 this. years. <laughs> Probably uh. in eighth grade. I think we sorted out that it was in eighth grade that I read this. Okay. But no, Just it's, yeah. like thumbs down. Great movie. I don't know if it's better than 1917, which is the most recent uh, World War One movie of similar vintage that is worth talking about. Right. Uh, but but along those lines, like if you if you're like I'm gonna watch a weekend of World War One movies, like you you could do worse than picking uh, All Quiet on the Western Front and 1917. I, w- I will say that uh, the movie Babylon did not work overall, but I'm surprised it didn't win any music related stuff because at least that was the one good part of that movie, but it didn't win anything. All right, uh, number two, I have Triangle of Sadness, and Abe, did you end up seeing that Triangle is of Sadness? The or no? one movie I have not seen. I'll circle back. Gotcha. Oh, you'll like it. So this was on Hulu. It's another one of the weird ones. And I think the reason that I like it as much as I did comes down to I usually like it when a good writer treats his characters with a great deal of contempt. And (laughs) the writer here treats all of these characters with a great deal of contempt, including the ones – it's it's sort of what I liked about Parasite and what I didn't understand about the discourse around Parasite a few years ago was that it was this big class war thing and that like we're supposed to feel good about – the uh the the impoverished people the, the, the people who are get who are getting one over on the rich folks whereas the the portrait painted of the of the lower class people in that movie is not a very flattering one <laughs> uh, and this the same goes here like the it, there's a little bit of class warfare stuff that goes on here but it's not like it's just a bunch of vic- the people who are in the service class or the lower class are not a bunch of victims uh they they turn out to be sort of unseemly themselves in important ways and it's a it's by this guy who's made interesting movies in the past apparently before i haven't seen any of them now i'm interested to see his other movies but it was fun and then uh, number one ends up going to the banshees of inashirin which is the Irish. curiously about some white dudes i don't care for that particular uh, reduction of my feelings about this I movie i should call it man talking reducing um, it's just funny uh, did you see Banshees I did. of Inisherin? I did. We yeah. talked about it. Yeah. I don't remember you talking about it. What were your What was your feeling? I, I, th- of, I think of this I movie? said I, I I I do like it, and I probably did say that. Hopefully, I said that. Um, one thing did. about uh, the Colin Farrell character, there's nothing more infuriating than that type of person. This fucking dipshit who's like imposing on you, like they won't leave you alone. And then right. there's something that goes sideways. I don't know. Uh, was it his? pet or something happened to oh it's the spoilers this lots of spoilers the donkey the donkey uh, was that little ass yes uh, and it's like, oh you've made a sworn enemy for life it's like you're just concocting this that's so we continue to interact like i wanted you to leave me alone i've cut all of my fucking fingers and you're still not leaving me alone i would have just killed this guy i know he's a little <laughs> slow but like fuck that guy I could see you sending this movie off to a couple of your co-hosts on the Biffler and and just like with no added commentary, just being like, why don't you check this movie out? And, and imagine I'm Brendan Gleason. That's all. I'm, I'm, I say nothing further. I think this is actually a really, really great movie and not just because it's two uh, white dudes having uh, brotherly problems. 
Again, I, I loved the performance by the the actress, the the woman who plays the sister, whose name escapes me at the moment. I always like Colin Farrell. I think that he's reliably good yeah. and should be in more things probably, but I guess he picks his projects carefully. It is a movie that is probably an allegory for war. They make that pretty plain with the the war happening like across the war? sea there. Or what's going on? Like it's like 1923. Yeah, the Irish. So a, a brief, a, I looked it up briefly because I don't know my Irish history, but there was a brief year-long civil war in 1923 or 1922 through 1923 that presaged a lot of the troubles, so to speak, that would uh, follow for the next 80 years or so. It was along Catholic Protestant lines even then? Yes, okay. the same the same thing that they've always been fighting about apparently. And their relationship obviously is meant to sort of like, you know, we were best friends and nobody's even sure what the hell the problem is here. And you're not being rational about this. And uh, it's just not fair. And it further in a way that all the reason that they always make war movies and will always make war movies is that it gives unremarkable dummies like our, our boy who you're talking about a chance to elevate themselves into something more interesting right like you you find yourself in an extreme situation and that reveals something about the character in you know for better or for worse ultimately and i just thought it worked very very well without being overbearing i didn't think that they were whacking you over the head with the fact that this was actually an allegory for war i didn't I just thought it all worked very well. And it it is enjoyably absurdist in its way. Like no person has ever actually chopped off all of the fingers <laughs> on their hands yeah. so that their best friend, ex-best friend, will stop talking to them uh, and then had the donkey die as a result. Obviously, that isn't the sort of thing that happens. And I was like – I was moved by the parts that I was supposed to be moved by, right? So when he gets his ass beaten by – the local constabulary, and then Brendan Gleeson finally is like, well, this isn't okay, and he knocks the cop out yeah. and helps him get back to his house. Like, yeah, like that. you can tell that there's a lot of feeling there. And I also, because like, so not only is it war, not only is it a question of, like, relationship between these two dudes who've known each other their whole lives, and then also the thing with the sister, and she needs to go find something else, she needs to get the fuck out of here to, to figure something out with her life. There's also an interesting argument at the core of this about finding meaning in life and what does it mean to do something that matters to anyone beyond your own short time here on the planet and is it enough just to chat and have good talks and have meaningful relationships with the people around you or is there some way that you can really become immortal and become more than the 60 or 70 years that you're here on this planet if somebody is still playing the piece of music that you write right. 50 years from now and like what does it mean to create good art if it means sacrificing the relationships that you have in the moment? Like, that is interesting conversations to have and things Why to think about. Why do they have to be mutually exclusive? Right, but that's what I'm saying is they, they, they don't always, but there's they, they sort of have this argument about, like, the virtue of the genius, right? So we've always accepted the unstable genius asshole as like, well, you put up with him because he makes this great art. And it's like, I don't know. Is that actually something that it has to be mutually exclusive or not? And it has that conversation without bashing you over the head with it, right. unlike some of the other movies uh, that were nominated this year. And I'm disappointed that it didn't win. I would have 
been fine with everything everywhere sweeping all of the performance categories that it won and the and the editing and all of that but i would have much rather that uh, a different movie had won picture of the year although uh when harrison ford came out to give out the best picture i know that no one's supposed to know what's in the envelope but that seems like it did seem like a bit of a giveaway. Like here comes Harrison Ford, and there's short round down there there's going Steven crazy. Is like and, a few rows down. It's like yeah, yeah. Anyway, a fine night, you know, rolling around in the decadence of the culture. Last night, no complaints about Jimmy Kimmel. He was fine. He was great. They always try to do these bits, and the fun in them is that they generally don't work, you know. But it's just uh, them trying to make it work. It's always funny. Like he was doing. I guess they needed to clear the stage for. Rihanna, and so he's right. like, "Ah, let me do some bullshit Q and A thing." I just made up these questions. And- Look, any opportunity to make fun of Matt Damon should be <laughs> taken, uh, and so that's what he did there in the audience. That was good, right? Uh, I liked I liked his stupid joke about how should we or should we not include Robert Blake. <laughs> who was found civilly liable for murdering his wife, uh, who died this year. Should we include him in the In Memoriam segment or not? I thought that was great. Like, I love these moments, the sort of Gervaisian moments of puncturing the pomposity in the room in a loving sort of way. Like, that's what I tune in for. That was was fine. And I saw somebody complaining about that, like like it was – inappropriate to make a joke about uh domestic violence in that way it's like get the fuck yeah, out of yeah, here that's, relax yourself don't be so precious yeah i thought he could have pushed a little bit further uh, along those I, lines I think but, maybe but otherwise since it was, it was a year later they're like let's just kind of get through this and then we can circle back to pushing the envelope in future years because this is a what a very like let's just get through this you know, right. and the- I would one thing that I would change as a rule if I were the producer of this show and I was talking to the talent, I was like, all right, Kimmel, uh, you can make literally any joke you want to make. Do not joke about how long the show is. First of all, it's never funny. Right. Like the, you, no one has ever come up with a good joke about how long the show is. Because it's it's just a fact, right? right? Like it's just what it is. It's a long show. Right. It's going to go three, three and a half hours. Nobody fucking cares, right? He went back like, to that well uh, a bunch of times, right? Throughout the evening, it was like he mentioned that they always do. There's right. always jokes right. about how long the show is. Right. It's like a, a feature of the whole thing, and it's like just drop it. Literally anything else would be would be better than another joke about how long it's going to be. They should have at least once tried the gimmick that he was making fun of at the beginning, where he had the dancers kind of dance you. On, Kind of encircle you, yeah, and just yeah. And they should yeah. do it for- a callback. <laughs> a callback to that would have been great. Ratings, uh, ratings were up yet again. The, the good thing about uh, the the ratings for all these different shows going record lows is inevitably they're going to tick back up, and you can say, "Oh, look at this, it's up." Yeah, it's like eighteen point yeah. seven so million. Re- rebounded to like eighteen million or yeah, something. I think was the number. Is I saw. What they have, yeah. No, not not forty million like the olden days, but. That was going to happen no matter what. Like you know, it's it, it had nothing to do with the quality. I mean, it could it could have been there were plenty of dog shit Oscars yeah. back in the day, but the way people consume television gave you forty million no matter what. So it's not like it's eighteen million because it's that much worse. It's 
the same time. Right. And it just is what it, like I, I know that the, I guess we all have to play like in the same way that we all want to play general manager of our favorite right. baseball team or whatever. But like who fucking cares? Right. What are we talking yeah. about? Yeah. Like watch the Oscars or don't watch the Oscars. ABC made over a hundred million dollars selling ads for the thing. I'm sure they're perfectly happy with themselves. Right. Like it's fine. The, the, Relax. The, the only thing I don't understand is the allocation of time. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, they're trying to trim where they can. You don't want to just, you know, like baseball have like a clock or whatever, right? But some of the bits, it's like, what? Like, who is that into like The Rock doing a bit like where he's pretending whatever with uh, Emily, what's her face? And then the possibly sick uh, Elizabeth Banks doing a thing with the cocaine. I mean, like, there's a lot of fat to trim there. Like, just fucking just get to it. Why do you need to have these? Right. Like- and. The overwhelming majority of the time, the bits don't work. Right. Like the rock, the rock didn't like that. Felt just weird and out of place. I thought that the Elizabeth Banks and the cocaine bear thing actually kind of worked that for me, but like I can see why a lot of people wouldn't like it. There is definitely plenty of other shit that can go. Certainly, you also don't want it to just be like celebrity walks out, right. celebrity says, right. and here are the nominees. Like, speed, like you yeah. want it to have a little something. Right. Anyway, we move on from the Oscars. I want to talk briefly about. Various ways the culture war is playing out in increasingly stupid and disconnected ways. First, I would point to a blog that I wrote called The Best Part of the Culture War is That You Can Fight It Literally Anywhere Over Nothing. There's a New York Times article last week on, quote, the magification of North Idaho College. Did you happen to read that article? Yes, yes, I did. The thing that struck me out of this, and we don't have to go into the gnarly details Basically, there's a community college in North Idaho that got upset because somebody at the college released a DEI statement following the death of George Floyd. Like, you know, whatever. It's a like shame he to, died or something. You know, like, it wasn't even right. like so, they need. Yeah. Well, like they need to do their part in combating systemic racism right. and on, like the normal fucking bullshit that you would hear out of well-meaning people in the face of something awful like the George Floyd thing happening. This upset the local Republicans to the point where they activated themselves and uh, elected candidates to the board of trustees of this college who would uh, remake it in their image, right? Who would, who would try to make it more in line with the conservative culture war agenda as opposed to being overrun by the liberal agenda. And I have, I believe, just described, like, all of the details yeah. that this fight is about. Like, unless the reporter just left out anything interesting or substantial from his reporting, which seems unlikely, uh, it seems much more likely that this is just a fight about nothing between uh, conservatives who are who just don't want the liberals to be in charge anymore. Right. Uh, and it doesn't appear to be anything else that they're hanging this specific fight on. And increasingly, that is this. Those are the sorts of like. Granted, we talk about the specifics here often enough. Whether it's the the goofy trans stuff, or the banning of books, uh, either Florida with the conservatives doing it, or with liberals trying to get the the bad words taken out of Roald Dahl and R.L. Stein books. There are smaller fronts where this war is being fought, so to speak. But largely, it's just like weird ephemeral feelings right. between people who are convinced that their way of life is at stake or something along those lines. But it's not just feelings. It's language and like signaling, right? So like the likely reason why there was this reaction is because 
the DE, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion did a thing. And so there's an association with DEI to being some sort of liberal scheme, just like, you know, if somebody says Black Lives Matter, they're going to associate that with a left thing, right? Uh, and so right. they're, you know, you could say some very generic statement like, it's a tragedy that George Floyd were to die and we should all do more, blah, blah, blah. You know, something, just basic statement. But it'll be seen as, hey, you are on the other side of this. Even though, like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm on the side of just killing people. But, like, you're using language that I wouldn't use. And so, therefore, you're not in my tribe. And so I'm going to try to unseat you or kind of drown you out or do something. It's all because of the language they use. So if some people right. say certain things they'll say, oh, you're one of those people, just by virtue of using those words. Right. Along these same lines, there was an article in USA Today written by Susan Page uh, talking about a poll, the uh, headline, Americans divided on whether woke is a compliment or insult. And I'll actually play a brief 15-second clip here from the Slate Political Gab Fest because John Dickerson sort of lays out the point very quickly. So that's the Democratic side. On the Republican side, the, um, you know, it's everything is woke that you want to attack. Politics right now is in the Republican side, not about affirmatively going for things, but defending against the incursions by the socialists and the woke. And DeSantis owns that territory. The problem from a general election perspective, actually, is the USA Today did a poll, and it turns out that 56% of those surveyed said that the term woke means to be informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. So it doesn't have the negative connotations that MAGA does, but that's for another day. At the moment, DeSantis has woke. He can also make this competence pitch. I will stop it there because I think that Dickerson makes an important mistake, and it's the same mistake that Susan Page makes in interpreting the results of this poll. So the question asked was, thinking again about what it means to be woke, which of the following comes closest to your view, even if neither is exactly right? Uh, 56% of respondents of all different demographic groups, so just the total, 56% said it means to be informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. And 39% said that it is to be overly politically correct and police others' words. I don't think that it is correct for Dickerson and Susan Page to say that that means that 56% of people have a positive impression of what it means to be woke. It just means that they're acknowledging that it means to be quote unquote informed, educated on and aware of social injustices. That doesn't mean that they think that being woke is good. That what, what Dickerson is doing there is he's saying, Oh, in, being informed, being educated, and being aware of social injustice, most people must think that that's good. Right. No, you're talking about a significant portion of the American public who has a negative view of going to college, right? right? You're, you're talking about a significant portion of like, like some large percentage of Republicans who disagree that education is necessarily a good thing and that being informed is necessarily a good thing if what we mean by informed is that you take in all of the liberal media all of the time, right? Right. That you just get all of your information from fake news. I think that they are doing a very bad job of understanding what is in the minds of people who are responding to this or potentially in the minds anyway, right? Right. I, I don't, what I'm, all I'm saying is that there's no way that 
56% of people who might agree that that's the definition of woke, therefore further believe that it is uh, good to be woke right. and that, that being right. woke is although, is something to be proud of. Right. Or although I do wonder, like, if they did, like, a – if they ant- – Ask a question in the right way, and I don't know what that is. Uh, well, they sort of do. They sort of do because they say, what percent do you consider it a, a compliment or an insult? Okay. And 60% of Republicans say it's an insult, right. which validates exactly the no, thing but, that I'm saying here. Okay. And it's in the same poll. Right. But see, okay, so that that is a better uh, uh, question and response because that's what where I figured things are. Like, So it's 60-40 within the Republican Party. Or 60 and then whatever else is the rest of the 40. Right, six, no, 60% of Republicans say it's an insult and 14% say it's a compliment. Okay, I don't, and the other people just I have no opinions the other... or whatever. Right, they, right. They're just like whatever. Uh, and is, do they do they have a number for the Democratic side? Is it – Yeah, so 40% consider it uh, – this is independents or all Americans. 40% consider it an insult. 32% consider it a compliment. Democrats – 25% consider woke an insult and 46% consider it a compliment. So you combine there is it a woke is woke a compliment or an insult thing with the definitions that they give and I don't think that you can assign a moral valence right. to right. the definitions. Right. The more right? But also there there is a lack of interest in giving one definition for it. I think uh, the people that want to use it as a negative they prefer it to be kind of a catch-all like it's whatever i don't like or you know it's what they're doing they're these goody two-shoes or supposedly goody two-shoes but they're you know really assholes uh the problem is like woke you know like i always compared it to like red pill or you know awake like i think conservatives sometimes will say awake not woke whatever like people are trying to like oh be aware of things you know like you were just kind of living your life and you weren't aware of these underlying things all the MAGA people that are talking about deep state that's like a awakening to that fact right i mean you right, right? they absolutely right. so like, they absolutely use the same language right. they've been red pilled or they've right. been MAGA pilled right. but you're kind of saying the same thing right. that's why it hurt you know like you know uh, uh governor DeSantis and others i mean especially DeSantis, he wants to make that be the negative, but it's such a vague kind of thing. I, I think people understand that it's often used to as an attack, but it's never been given a clear definition because it's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. Right. To the point where DeSantis goes on television and in front of crowds today and is insisting that the Silicon Valley Bank in California, the 16th largest bank in the country, failed because it's too woke, right. which is which is bonkers. Right. It is not at all in in conversation with reality in any way right. whatsoever. But that's you know, kind of going to the point you were making about how culture wars over nothing. In in many ways, it's culture war also over anything, right? Because if it's over nothing, it could just be for whatever anything that happens, you can just say that, right? Like anything that happens negative, just say, oh, there they go again. It's because they went woke, and that will right. carry some weight with some people. It won't convince anybody uh, who isn't already right. on your side, right. though, uh, importantly. But it, it will. And, and DeSantis is currently in consolidate the base away from Trump as much as possible uh, mode right now. Right. And I wonder if 
And I don't know what sort of pivot he could conceivably make a year from now if he got the nomination where he could get away from this everything is woke stuff uh, or if he would think that would be to his benefit. But I don't think I don't think that he can win. uh, I mean, barring the fact that Joe Biden is going to be way too fucking old. So like the this the substance of the conversation might not actually matter at all if it just comes down to "Ah, do we really want an 85 year old dude to be the president anymore? Uh, Maybe we don't. All right. Uh, I do quickly want to discuss this uh, Silicon Valley Bank thing because I read a punishing amount about it today. Because I asked him specifically not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it is I, I think it is interesting and I think that I can explain it in a way that is at least understandable. Do you know what happened so here, the, Abe? Do you have any? The, the simple – my simple understanding of it is that uh, people were spooked about the, the lack of liquidity and there was a traditional bank run where basically people lost confidence and like in one day like $40 billion were withdrawn or I don't know if that number is accurate, but it was like a ridiculous – In a very short period right. of time, uh, they attempted to withdraw $42, 42. billion dollars from yeah. this bank, which had uh, total assets of just under $250 billion. So – they had uh, deposits of, I think it was, I think the number is two hundred and thirty billion dollars or something like that. And over the course of a very short period of time, forty-two billion dollars worth of those deposits were attempted to be called back by the people who had made them, and the bank was obviously not able to fulfill those requests because they only had, in terms of uh, liquid assets, something like six percent of the total. Of that, because that's just how fractional reserve banking is meant to work, right? I mean, you bring in yeah. a th- you bring in a thousand dollars in deposits. You turn around and immediately loan out that nine nine hundred of that dollars, and just having the one hundred dollars on hand is supposed to be that that is considered plenty liquid enough as long as people don't come begging for their money right. uh, I, the next day. I always thought of it like you know, like in, in a society, in a functioning society. Like most people go about their day without causing any trouble. They're not committing any crimes. They're not hurting other people. And then the city has the resources to deal with those few uh, who are doing those things. But if everybody did it, like the system would collapse, right? Like there's no way that uh, a society can function if you had like, you know, 20% of the city were just murderers, right? I mean, there's no no adequate (laughs) way to deal with that, right? And in, in that way, basically, there's predictable behavior with. A regular bank and people deposit and they withdraw in predictable ways. So you don't need to have all the money there all at once. But if there's a lack of confidence and people say, I don't trust that you'll have my money when I need it, I'm going to get it now. And everybody goes to the bank. The whole thing falls apart, kind of like with the toilet paper thing that happens when people freak out. There's a rhetorical device that politicians use. Uh, I always hear it in Barack Obama's voice. I'm sure it goes back further than Barack Obama, but it's the let's be clear thing. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uh, And Elizabeth Warren starts an editorial or an op-ed in the New York Times today with uh, no one should be mistaken is is her way, which is another way of saying uh, let's be clear. Uh, She says no one should be mistaken about what unfolded over the past few days in the U.S. banking system. These recent bank failures are the direct result of leaders in Washington weakening the financial rules. And I read this piece with an increasing sense of like desperate 
frustration at what she was doing here, which is not to say that she's doing the same thing that Ron DeSantis is doing, which is like pointing and saying, oh, it's woke. That's the problem is all the woke stuff. But like for her to point at one deregulatory move from 2018 as being the only and prime cause of what happened here is to tell as it, it, it's not to tell as dumb a lie about the world as Ron DeSantis is telling when he blames everything on woke, but it is not to tell the truth about what's going on here. It's a, it is a very complicated situation that is not just about whether or not we rolled back some particular uh, aspects of the Dodd-Frank financial reforms in 2018. And I can prove it by the fact that there are regulations in place that would have found out these problems and allowed regulators to uh, stop this from happening had they just been doing their job over the course of the last three years. Right. The solutions to the problem that led to this bank failure, which is a big catastrophic thing that should have not happened the way that it happened or arguably should just be allowed to happen. And I think that that is an important part of this conversation too. The point is is that this could have been stopped with the laws that are already on the books and Elizabeth Warren is not telling the so, truth so about the fact that what what changed in 2018 led directly to this result. This is very reminiscent of the train derailment, right, where there was – it rolled back of some previous policy, but it had no connection to the accident similar to this. You can point to something that was rolled back from Dodd-Frank years ago, but that alone wasn't the cause of this case. But people will want to draw right. that connection because it's advantageous politically to say – To say nothing of the fact that the – the true precipitating events here are the is all of the profligate spending and the huge injections of cash into this economy that have gone on for the last three years since uh, the, since the COVID stuff happened, right? And so, like, she's been more than happy to insist on more and more government spending and more and more uh, emergency spending, and that is what led to this, arguably more than anything else. So, this uh, to get into the specifics here a little bit, the reason that this bank. Uh, got into trouble is that uh, venture capitalists were absolutely flush with cash in uh, 2019, 2020, 2021 as a result of the pandemic, and we had low interest rates, and so they uh, people just kept pouring more and more money into venture capital, and the venture capital firms, uh, the, the beneficiaries of that, all of these startups in Silicon Valley, had all of this fucking money, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they just stick it in the bank, right? And then the bank is like, well, now we've got all of this money and we don't know what to do with it. And we can't lend any money right now because all of our customers are incredibly flush with cash, so much so that they can't spend it. They just keep giving it to us. And so they do what they believe, foolishly ultimately, is a responsible thing, which is they tie up a huge percentage of their liquid assets in long-term treasury bonds, right? So they think what they're doing is they're shoring themselves up to, to mitigate risk moving forward by by having these what are what amount to are are essentially from a, a layman's perspective an entirely risk free treasury bond like a five year bond or a ten year bond that's only going to pay like one percent return right? right the problem with that is that if you put seventy percent of your money into those treasury bonds and then the Fed turns around and starts raising 
raising the rates in an effort to combat inflation. So not only are you uh, losing money because you have now dumped your money into a treasury bond that will not even come close to outpacing the rate of inflation, you're further losing money because the bank down the street is uh, now offering better interest rates because they're getting much better than 1% return on their treasury bonds, right? right? So you've, you're, you're in, a, in a weird way, this what's supposed to be this very stable and and sort of financial backbone of your entire enterprise ends up fucking you. It's a weird fact of, of how banking works, and it's a bummer, but like you take something that is supposed to keep you solvent and it actually starts working exactly against you. And so now somebody and the 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 way that it works is like now this startup needs to make payroll and they're not getting all of that sweet sweet VC money as much anymore. So they go back to the bank and they're like, "Okay, I need 12 million dollars for payroll." And the problem is that the bank instead of loaning out that money and making 5 or 6% on that money and so now they have assets that they can pay you back your initial deposit with, they have to cash out these treasury bonds and they can't sell them to anybody for anything near their right. value, they have to sell them at a discount. So if they bought a treasury bond for $100, they can now only sell it for $75. they have just taken a $25 bath. That $25 is gone, and they're, now they have, uh, they're in the hole in much the same way that they, they would have been in the hole in 2008 with these mortgage-backed securities. It's funny, though it, they're completely different financial instruments, it ends up working in very similar ways. Right. And I apologize uh, if that was over no, no, everybody's heads, yeah. but I read a lot about it today, <laughs> well, uh, and it's since, somewhat interesting since to Since you're well-read on this, um, well, maybe you can answer this question that I had, which is the way that, you know, on the news, the way they were explaining it is, okay, so this bank is like this, the 16th largest bank or whatever. This is like the second largest collapse of a bank or a bank failure. They said uh, the larger banks like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, they – they have to follow stricter rules, right? And then further down, these other banks, uh, they don't have to meet the same high standards with, you know, m- making sure your ratios are a certain way. Where, well, yes. So they have to face stress tests. Uh, the problem with Elizabeth Warren saying that if this bank had been subject to the same stress tests that the bigger banks are, which, by the way, one hundred percent of the banks that face those stress tests uh, in the most recent round of them passed. So the question, like even, and that's that's at the, for these bigger banks, the more stringent one that, that Elizabeth Warren wants to be in place for these smaller banks as well. The fact that they passed all of these tests, even though all of these bigger banks are actually in, have they have very similar problems to what SVB is dealing with because they, uh, I found a CNN article that had totaled up all of the low interest uh, treasury bonds, and it's like six hundred billion dollars or something for these big banks. So there's there's a huge pile of money that's still out there that is uh, effectively they're called long term holds, but they're just potentially a huge drains on the ability of these banks to actually meet their reserve requirements or meet their uh, uh, customers' deposit request if they decided to come after them. And so the way that you described it at the very beginning, where you were like, this was just a classic run on the bank, is 100% correct. And a lot of even the bigger banks, though they claim that they, uh, the regulators claim that they would survive these stress tests, uh, if, if something similar happened to them, they absolutely would right. not yeah. because they would be in a, in a similar 
similar situation. And there's no there's no beating a run on the bank. That's why it's such a scary well, thing. Like it's yeah. nothing that there's nothing in Elizabeth Warren's regulations that she's so insistent upon these uh, smaller banks should have to meet that prevents runs on banks because it's this weird psychological phenomenon more than anything right. else. And and, and that's uh, you know uh, over the weekend there was intervention and I thought you know it seemed like it was a very appropriate time to intervene, you know, the FDIC and the federal government stepping in, uh, because you have to account, at least for my uh, reading, you have to account for panicky human behavior, right? The run on the bank is, I don't trust, I'm just going to get mine because on Monday, I may not be there, right? And everybody's taking the same thing and the whole thing collapses, right? And so there needs to be an instilling of confidence to say, the money will be there, and no one else – there's no other entity other than the federal government that can step in and instill that confidence, right? Now, you don't want the government to be footing the bill for bad behavior, right? And that's a concern. Like, okay, then if they – Right, and by the way, the FDIC the, – so the deposit insurance only goes up to a quarter of a million yeah, dollars, right. right? Which is meant to protect most people, normal everyday yeah, yeah, people, yeah. right? And the problem is that – 92% or something of the investors in this bank or the depositors of this bank had deposited funds in great excess of that 250,000. These are not, not these are not retail bank right. bank accounts, right? right? I mean, these are mostly yeah. uh, corporations that are, right. are banking here. Right. And it it there's a huge I mean the the phrase moral hazard of course gets used in these sorts of situations, but there's a huge Issue with the federal government coming in and guaranteeing 100% of deposits for this bank rather than stepping in and, and doing what I think that they should have done, which is putting a halt on withdrawals, right, up to a certain point. You say, we guarantee you uh, your $250,000 up, up to that point, because that's what the FDIC is meant to do. If you want your money now, you can have $250,000 and we'll make you whole in that way, according to the risks that you knew you were taking when you failed to limit your exposure in such a way, right? You, as this stupid company, put $50 million in this bank and you were only covered up to a quarter million dollars. That's on you, you fucking morons. Right. Like, I don't know why it needs to be on anybody else. So if you can't afford to be illiterate, liquid in this way for a short period of time while we figure it out, then that's on you. And and we will do our best to sell this bank to somebody else at a great discount, and we will foot the bill for that. But we can't be on the hook for two hundred and fifty billion dollars, right, right? right? We can cover we can cover the distance between the dis the discount that we have to give Goldman Sachs or whatever giant monster mega corporation bank wants to come in and uh, ultimately buy these assets. We'll cover the discount that we have to pay to unload this situation on somebody else. But we're not going to cover the entire thing, and instead. They came in and said, basically, uh, because of uh, systemic risk to the entire system that we've just decided exists, we are going to change the law and say we there are now no limits. Well, yeah, because on, basically they say at uh, least 250. I mean, they can always go more. But again, this goes back to the issue of confidence, right? If you have this contagion, right? And if you have Okay, but what if but what if what if what we saw over this weekend was a bunch of uh shithead 
people who've got tens of millions of dollars in this bank that they don't want to see go up and smoke, who then spend the entire weekend holding a flame to the rest of the economy by being like, if you don't make us whole right now, then you're going to, we will help engender this feeling of uh, lack of confidence in the entire thing, and we will start causing bank runs as much as we can on the rest of the economy unless you make us whole. Like that was the sort of rhetoric that was coming out of people who had deep financial interests in being made whole by the federal government, and that's not acceptable. And maybe that's a weird sort of uh, problem of the social media right. age where you have these uh, weird VC tech bro influencer types who can have a, a, a disproportionate amount of influence on the conversation at large and can sort of hold hostage the entire banking system. Right. But that's not the deal that we made when we set up the FDIC to bail people out up to $250,000, right. right? And it's weird to me that uh, the Fed or Biden or some combination of the Fed and Treasury and like the, the weird relationships that go on there can come in and just say, actually, we've got you covered 100% right. of the I, way. I still think— it, it, it does nothing for solving this problem going forward. No. It's a, it's a Band-Aid, and it only encourages more— uh, risky and bad right. behavior. The, but the forward. bandaid is important because again, you don't want to you you don't want this to spiral out of control. So their action, I think, is appropriate because they won't have to actually do anything. They're just instilling confidence. But this is a problem because going forward, it should be like the U.S. government is an interested party. I don't care how big or small a bank it is, right? You can be one of the dominoes that fucks up this whole thing, right? So there needs to be legislation that says you. You can't hold us hostage like this in the future. I mean, in the moment, you have to act and do the right choice. It doesn't matter if some tech bro is benefiting right, well, from also, it. Also, and again, I can't stress this, this enough. A lot of the problem was how much cash we injected into the system that just had nowhere to go. And so all of this money flows into Silicon Valley into into these startups and they just don't even know what the fuck to do with it. They can't they can't spend it fast enough. They can't come up with products to create to to move the money around. So they just have to dump it into the bank and then the bank doesn't know what to do because they can't lend it out. Uh, like it, it, it's this stupid self-perpetuating well, I mean, system. They can lend it. They can park the money. They were trying to get even more money back, right? They were trying to use the money for, to further their profit interest, right? And and they got caught. Uh and, and and right, but they weren't. They weren't taking. That's the thing is they they were not taking giant risks. They just made a mistake in terms of how big a pile of long term treasury bonds they built up over a over a period of time, as opposed to actually putting this money back out into the economy. Like, yeah, they made mistakes. They they misunderstood the sort of risk that they were exposed to. But the, the problem is the giant sums of, I mean, of money that got one injected aspect. into I mean, the system. If you had more stringent regulations, the idea – you're not going to catch them all, but to get ahead of the problem before it becomes a problem, it's the same thing with a train issue. Anyone that's for deregulation, you have to accept that this is the cost sometimes to cutting corners – Early on, right? Because inevitably, right, this is going to happen. They were also they were also further. They're not allowed to explain their actions, which only engenders more panic in the population. So they, when they sold, because they sold off eighteen billion dollars or something worth of these treasury bonds, and they are prevented by SEC rules from going out there and being like, look. I know this looks bad, but the reason that we're doing this is because we don't have enough to cover okay. our 
things right now. Like we are not an insolvent bank. We're just a very illiquid bank. And they, they're not allowed, according to SEC rules, they're, they, they have very stringent regulations in place already about what they're allowed to say about the reasons that they're doing these things. And so they could not actually explain themselves. And so that only leads to more of the panic. Right. So that, that there's the irony of, of regulations getting in the way of actually trying to tamp down a panic rather than having the opposite impact. A funny thing happened last week when Bob was editing the show. I came downstairs and he had Russell Brand up on the on the laptop yeah. and I said, I like Russell Brand. I don't know what people don't like about him. And Bob said, oh, he's fine. He does a uh, talking too much thing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and and as he as it came out of his mouth, he knew what was happening. It was good. I should have gone to bed when you started talking about this instead of. All instead right, of we can we that. can be done with the no, banking I'm just talk. Gonna go, no, I'm gonna go to bed because I'm tired and I don't feel good. All right, don't well, be mad at me. I'm I not just, mad at like, you. I'm not, I've been encouraging I'm you to not, stop showing up for this podcast for three years. So I, I'm not gonna be mad. Your dad would be so sad. <laughs> I'm going to bed. Good night. Good night, Lori. Good night, Lori. Uh, do we have anything else on the bank stuff before uh, we... No, uh, I, although I would like to see how this unfolds, like when more information comes to light, because it seems like, you know, so I was reading somewhere that there was some egging on, perhaps. Like there's some something seems to have happened with this bank that like caused... Because somebody was uh, looking back at other failures and nothing came close to $42 billion in like a day or a day and a half, like... Right, but that's what I, that's what I meant when I brought up the like the influence of these social media platforms and the and the group chats in spreading what becomes a meme about getting all of your money out of this, and especially when you are a, a sort of small cloistered community, like apparently this is like the go-to bank yeah. for a bunch of these. these cap- they have fewer than twenty physical locations, right? Banks that are this big usually have hundreds and hundreds of physical branches out there in the world. This is a tiny little bank that happens to have a huge portfolio of assets, or used to anyway. Now they're not worth anything. And again, I can't stress enough that like it is, it is Fed action that did this, and it is a failure on the part of the people who manage this bank to realize. That raising of interest rates in an attempt to combat inflation was going to fuck them. But the bottom line is that it was Fed action that ended up causing this to happen. And so there is that argument to be made that the reason that the government needs to step in and prevent this from having a, a, a more widespread negative impact on the market at large is because in some regard they are at fault uh, for what's going on here. Let's see if there's anything else. No, I'm – Free from Lori's complaints about it getting late. I can just. <laughs> to be fair, uh, it was trending to be at the same exact time episode. <laughs> How dare you? I don't know what you're talking about. Not right at all. I blogged about it, but I do think it's worth uh, mentioning here. Jonathan Haidt had a very, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, a long piece talking about the problem of like youth depression and anxiety going on here in our bogus future. And uh, he believes, as he would believe probably, that he and his colleague, uh, Greg Lukianoff, correctly identified this issue back in 2014, 2015, when they were writing The Coddling of the American Mind. And I sort of jumped off from that. In the blog, I think a lot of this conversation can sort of be reduced to a single point of contention. Now, and I'm, I'm 
I choose reduced for a reason. This is sort of reductionist and it's uh, over simple. And there are a million other explanations that are equally valid, probably. But I do think that and this is this touches slightly on what I was talking about earlier with the American dream stuff and how we don't we don't accept the sort of basic promise of the American dream in the way that we did more broadly as a as a wider culture, which is the the idea of bootstrapping, like uh, uh, being able to pull oneself up by one's own bootstraps, is a, a fundamentally American and sort of uh, libertarian ideal that cross cut. In both parties, for as long as I can remember, until about five years ago, right? Like until Donald Trump, maybe, maybe a little bit before that. But the idea of taking personal responsibility—it was it always sort of semi-bullshit. Of course, it was. There are factors that exist beyond your control that keep you from really being fully in charge of yourself and taking control of your situation and and fulfilling the American dream for you. Absolutely, but bootstrapping has become in the last few years ideologically valenced in a way that I don't think it was before. It wouldn't have been out of character for Bill Clinton to talk about pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps, right? right? Now, he would also say it takes a village and we're happy to help and and all of those things. So the Democrats were always more likely to say – we want to help you. Know, it's not a handout; it's a hand up. We want to we want to help right. you. Is in the I think that's an Obama formulation, right? Is uh, helping people along. I think that that has redounded in profoundly negative ways through the culture. This sort of bifurcating of the idea of bootstrapping, and and like not to say that the conservatives are right about it necessarily, but I think that it's important that you like. W- and now I'm disappointed that Lori left the room because I want to talk about the ways that you would raise kids. But you would never raise kids to be like, actually, everything is fucking hopeless. And nothing, right. No, that, yeah. Nothing that you do in your life is going to make any meaningful difference. And it's all just a question of luck and privilege and like sort of the, the bare facts of your personality and how well you interview and like the, the random luck associated with getting ahead. Like you would never tell a kid that. Like, what, what the fuck is wrong with right. you? You would tell them, work hard, do your best, and uh, eventually things will break in your way one way or another. Or, you know, maybe they maybe won't. They, yeah. But at least, yeah. you will have, at least you will have done your best. Right. At least you gave it the old college try. Right. And there's this – I think that there's an element of we've allowed the fact that – I mean, it's funny because it ties into the, the nihilistic black bagel in uh, – <laughs> In everything. everything, everywhere, yeah. all at once. But like, yeah, to a certain extent, everything is fucking meaningless. None of this shit matters. And no matter how hard you try, the universe is still going to take a dump down your throat and you're going to you're going to fucking die alone. Right. Right. Like that. That is that is true in some Not fundamental, always. important way. But it's nothing to tell a 10 year old. Right. Right. It's 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 nothing to tell someone who hasn't yet figured that out for themselves. Right. So. A couple of points uh, that, that, uh, regarding this issue. So first, I, I think, you know, because every story, whether it's in the news, you know, the CBS morning shows that I watch or uh, the movies that are made, the televisions, uh, shows, sports, anything, rags to riches is a well-worn story. People love stories yeah. where somebody didn't have something and then they had it through hard work or through whatever, perseverance. Um you have people overcoming obstacles. Uh, and so I think, unless I am just in a bubble, I think those stories are still 
popular universally, like in America and worldwide, right? All right. There's that, there's that show that runs on NPR, not Planet Money. It's the one where Guy Raz talks to super billionaires about like people, people who, who started companies and made a billion fucking dollars out of it. I forget the name of it. How I Built This okay. is the name of the show. And he interviews like the Lululemon guy or whatever the fuck. And it's like, how did you turn this thing from, yeah, I used to sell stretchy pants out of the back of the right. trunk of my 82 right. Honda Accord. And now I have a billion and a half dollars. And like, how did you do this? And the last question that he always asks in those interviews is, how much of your success do you attribute to hard work and determination? And how much do you attribute to luck? Right. And the ones who are telling the truth say, well, it was obviously a combination of things. But the majority of them attribute a much higher percentage of it to luck, as though there's this like social pressure to insist that I only got to where I got because of luck right. rather than because of hard work. Right. And like that is a class of people who knows what it takes to, to actually have success in a place like this. And yeah, does luck factor in? Of course it does. And do people who bust their asses end up only with busted asses and not a billion dollars? Of course they do. It happens all the time. It's the overwhelming majority of the cases. When Michelle Yeoh gets up there and says, if you believe uh, hard enough, all dreams can come true. When Short Round gets up there right. and says, it's so important that you believe because otherwise uh, your dreams really can come true if you believe yes it's a necessary condition perhaps but it certainly by no means is a sufficient condition or there would be a hundred million oscar winners right. there's not right. there's only there fucking be. one right. every year so uh, on on that point do you think that because uh, i always thought it should be just priced in to the discussion that there is an element of luck i mean if you broaden that just being in a stable country right it's not like a war-torn place. You're not like being told to go to the front lines to like fight or whatever. You can make a pillow company, right, when you're on the Eastern Front, right? Uh, so like – but that should just be assumed. I don't understand why you have to go through the performance of like stating that I was – you know, like there's nothing you can do with your luck, good or bad. That's – that's no, what it it's is. because of the way it's because of the way the privilege component has come to dominate our entire fucking cultural conversation. Right, but I think that's where nobody nobody who achieves anything got anything except because of their privilege, and it's a weird reframing of luck into something that you didn't earn and you must cast off. It's like, no, right. what are you talking about? I got lucky. I'm sorry that not everybody can get lucky, but also I busted my ass right. to get what I was right. going to get. That's and true. yeah, did the did the dice roll my way more times than not yes of course they did right it's weird that we can't just admit that right i think uh, to me that's, I think that's sort of what you're getting at. i think people are not communicating honestly when there's a tension there uh because it doesn't make sense to me but just to move on to to another point that i want to make uh which is the bootstraps right so again like i was saying you know people love those stories somebody made it on the other side i think from what I gather, people have problems with bootstrap as policy, right? We're not going to do anything. Like, right. crumbling schools, let that be. Live in some, you know, high crime area. Fuck it. I don't care. Uh, healthcare. Fuck it. Like, it's on you, right? And so, like, I think people don't like it when it's like, well, we, need to, we can do better infrastructurally so people then can get an education and become an accountant. Everybody doesn't need to be LeBron James or, uh, you know, like Michelle. Right. You know, like people are – 
Those are great stories, but most people are fine just being an accountant or an engineer, provide for their family, and live, you know, a good life, right? Right, but if you if you have now turned the conversation into one with this strict moralistic valence to it, where everything is about this huge moral component, you're no longer having a conversation about policy, right? right? No. You're now having a conversation about what sort of a world do we want to live in or something along those lines. And if you're having it it's strictly in these stupid ideological terms, you're not actually talking about policy any right. longer. Do you, do you think that people, you know, the the, the one uncharitable thing I will say about the people who strongly push for privilege, man, you know, constantly talking about privilege, constantly talking about luck, all of these things. Um, and having a negative outlook, by the way, you know, I think somebody was saying that if you look at movements throughout the years, there was always an element of optimism about things improving. You have to believe things can get better and then strive to do the things that will accomplish that. Right. But if you're just wallowing in the negative, right. That's not very conducive to any sort of forward motion, like to do anything positive. If everything's shit, why even try to do something to make it better? Because right. it's shit, right? So it's just as a a way forward, it doesn't make sense just to kind of wallow in it. But I do wonder how much of this is because the people who are making all of these cases, the NPR types, they live very privileged lives. And I think they're, this, they're trying to assuage some guilt of the privilege that they see – in themselves, right? Or basically, like I'm just some schmuck. Went to some right. fancy schools. I have all these. I got all these jobs through networking, you know, like cause we all went to the same places, and I right. work at a very posh place. And they kind of feel uneasy. They must know that they're not going to systematize that out of the right. out of the situation, right. right? You must you must know that it is impossible to remove all of the luck and privilege out of this right. to get to some imagined uh, equity, like whatever equity fucking means to these people, I guess. But like, you're never going to get to a situation where you've made life fair in the way that my fucking ten year old wants life to be fair. It's just fucking childish, right. and I like and you can work towards a, a more perfect future right. but like this idea that uh, anything but the but perfection is is completely unacceptable or is some sort of a, a vast failing of the system is to just tell a lie about nature right which is it's and and it's to try to exempt the human animal from the wider project of life right. in a way that always drives me fucking crazy like uh this is completely bonkers off the wall stuff but for some reason i'm reminded of a piece i read in the new york times a few weeks ago about how like uh you should fucking reproduce with short people as a moral <laughs> imperative right so, what? so like <laughs> Was it a short person writing sure th this or like a advocate make, of a short person? I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. <laughs> but basically it was like stop fucking tall people. Uh, stop having stop making tall kids because it's uh it's uh it's just not fair or something. Like you have a moral duty to go on producing short people or something. It was very <laughs> stupid. But like I'm sorry you're not going to be able to escape the fundamentals of our uh, natural drives, right. no matter how much technocracy and bureaucracy you put on top of a system. Like we are still just animals and very wildly unfair things happen to animals all the fucking time. Right. And I, I do think uh, I always find it amusing and it almost comes across as a cop out when people fixate on like either trivial things or things that there's no real chance of changing. Like, why not focus on things that you can improve, like, in society instead of, like, how humans interact with each other? Like, you can't really 
let's say these words and not those words. Let's come up with some sort of like language for some new statue. There's a lot of just like busy work just to yeah. give the appearance yeah. of doing and I something. I think that it's I think that the busy work along those lines will continue indefinitely because I think that we have created a world with the internet, with social media that only reinforces all of those awful instincts that we have to try to control things that are fundamentally beyond our control. Right. I'll just read the last paragraph in the blog that I wrote about this because I think I said it uh, fairly succinctly. I've seen plenty of articles through the years about how conservatism and liberalism is basically inborn, that our genetic or very early formative experiences all but concretize the way we ideologically see the world. What if, with the internet, we invented a way of constantly delivering to our brains a reinforcement mechanism whose entire task is to build those foundations deeper and erect those walls higher? Could it result in the sort of spreading of human misery that so many in the national press have been talking about lately? Virtually all of human interaction for all of human history took place face-to-face, or at least voice-to-voice, until the internet transformed the way we interact with each other. Each other. It was billed as an empathy machine that would expand our horizons, give us the ability to interact with people of other cultures and see how they are like us and become more compassionate and understanding human beings as a result. I invite you to look around at uh, what's actually happened right. and insist that the internet has uh, has has succeeded in those uh, noble goals that it had at the outset. Right, and and I think uh, the the one thing I will say about just the impact the internet has had is that you know there there is some focus on youths and the, the young girls and the self esteem issues. It's not just young girls, but in particular young girls. But there's also an impact that it has on older people. Like there's this world, uh, warped worldview. So for younger people, it's like more like self-esteem, how they believe, what they think of themselves in this world. And then when you're older, the older people, like you know, the people that just believe any Facebook meme or whatever, uh, our parents' age, right? Uh, they seem to have this warped worldview. But it, it as it as it relates to your neighbor like the next person what you think of the other person and it's kind of fucking up how people view each other where they think they're spying enemies in their midst like oh this person is he said a word a certain way and i saw something online or read something somewhere that 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 is associated with an enemy of my tribe and right. and it causes all this chaos but so like it, it's impacting everybody's kind of polluting the minds of everyone but the impact is like slightly different maybe when the kids grow up they'll face a similar issue but at, at least right now the kids have like negative views of of themselves and the older people it's on other people you pointed at the the fact that this is a problem afflicting this 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 sort of modern anxiety issue affects young girls more than it affects young boys. And all of the research that I've seen so far seems to bear that out. I saw something else floating around today sort of in response to that that points out that the suicide rate for males is four times higher than it is for females. And it's something that you the, – the piece was sort of making the point, not in an obnoxious men's rights activist sort of way, but just sort of making the point like – how often do you hear that discussed at all right. in the media? And they point to a CDC site on suicide that makes no mention of the fact – like it talks about all of the disproportionate impacts that suicide has on different minority groups and LGBTQ and people of color and all the rest. But it fails to mention the fact that 
if you are a, a male person, you are four times more likely to end up committing suicide it, like than successfully, a female. It, it is a distinction. I, I, I always was aware that there is a gap between men and women, especially the young men. I think it was successful. I'll, I'll make sure there's a link in the show. Notes. I don't have it pulled up right now, but I think it's successfully – I mean, that's not how you're yeah, supposed to phrase you say, that, but, I don't but, think. But there are attempts. So, you know, there are attempts. And, and what I read years ago, I don't know if it's still the case, uh, men use much more effective means of killing, you know, like a gun to the head, you're likely going right. to die, versus like some pill, you know, you don't do the dosage right, you just get a tummy ache. I don't know. I don't know anything about suicide, but like from what I read, it's they take other approaches to killing themselves, which is not as effective as what the men do. I mean, it's just it's to an extent interesting who is a worthy victim and who is not, right? Because that's all the framing of this sort of stuff is. Ninety percent of all murders are committed by men. Also, in excess of eighty percent of murder victims are men. But the thing that we hear, the the we don't hear that statistic ever. But we constantly hear that women are wildly disproportionately more likely to be killed by a family member or or their husband or their boyfriend than anybody else. It's like, well, yeah, because 90% of murderers are fucking men, right? right? And granted, they kill a lot of women and it's bad, but 80% of murder victims are also men. And it's it's just not not the sort of statistic that comes up in polite conversation a lot of the time. Anyway, I guess that'll do it for tonight. Uh, You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob and Abe. Find the show on uh, brainiron.com is the best way to get us. You can also find the blog there. We are also on Facebook or Twitter. If you would like to share anything that I have written or we say on this show, Abe occasionally even writes for the website, though not not recently, Uh, I must say. I, I will write at least once this year. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Abe, did you... Uh, oh, and the opening and closing themes of the show were composed by Mark Gillig. Abe, did you make it to the movies this week? I did. I went to go see Scream 6. We're up to 6 uh, with the Scream. Impressive. Now that, so this is Scream 6, but it's like Scream 2 in this run of yes, Screams. Is, yeah, Isn't that right? Yeah, because I think the, the last two have been you know the same story. It's like a different cast. I mean, Nev Campbell... Uh, was in Scream 5. Apparently there was some sort of okay. negotiation that didn't go well because she's not in Scream 6, and the movie did very well. Like, word of mouth was strong. The opening weekend numbers were strong. Everything looks good. And now, you know, Nev Campbell, in the story, they were just like, oh, she's uh, worried about getting stabbed, so she took her family, uh, you know, up in the in New England somewhere. So right. kind of gave, like, two... Le- sentences and just moved on with the stabbing but the movie was the uh, the movie any good the movie was a lot of fun it's silly fun you know this is not going to make it to next year's oscars you know it's not that kind of movie it's not striving to be but uh as a theater movie it does a pretty good job and it seems like it's kind of shifted to the new generation you know like the first screams were around when we're uh youths uh and now the most of the people in the audience are like you know 20 you know 15 20 25 year old kids uh right so these movies are not aiming for in the same way that the creed movies were an attempt to capture the new generation rather than to be just a nostalgia trip for us and our parents or what have you these new scream movies are for the kids it's for the kids but it's also uh the older audience because you know they bring back uh courtney cox's character like dewey is you know dead for those who are keeping track of the characters dying right. from this movie but i will say one thing i mean 
I'm a big fan of the stabbings, you know, so there's a lot of stabs in this. But <laughs> the plot armor that some of these, the main, this new ensemble cast, like the Jenny Ortega is the only name that I know of the bunch, right? Uh, yeah. But she didn't get stabbed. But like the other people that are in her crew get stabbed so often and so violently. <laughs> and then like 20 minutes later, somebody's stretching them out. And they have the thumbs up saying, look at that, still hanging around. <laughs> Don't mind me, I'll be in Scream 7. Like, it's like, come on, have some respect for the stab. Yeah. Like, st- if you get stabbed a couple of times, that's one thing. But they're getting, there was a scene where this woman, uh, this young woman, she not only gets stabbed, but this, uh, the, the clown, the, the, the mask guy, uh, he. Ghost face. Yeah, yes. ghost face. He carves her up. Like, he moves the knife up. Yeah, the, the 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 full like gut yeah. move. Yeah, and that she's they still do. like, "Oh yeah. boy, I don't know how this is gonna turn out." Is it? <laughs> how are you still alive? Like you should be dead. Meanwhile, I watch All Quiet on the Western Front, and a dude takes like a twenty-two to the liver, and he's just done. Yeah, see, that's it's clean. fucking not right. Yeah, it's it's done. Yeah. But setting that aside, it was just a, a fun watch. People were uh, reacting to all the scare jumps and whatever. It was, it was an entertaining enough movie. A silly movie it doesn't make sense the story, but like it's fun. All right. Well, we watched, uh, as I said, I watched all of those Oscar movies. I got to eight out of the ten of them altogether. I look forward to seeing Tar and the Fablemans at some point. What did you think of the Last of Us finale? So, did you watch that today? Yeah, I, I watched it. Uh, I, I knew in advance that it was going to be a 40-some-odd-minute episode, which I thought was weird. Uh, the main takeaway was this Joel guy overreacted way too much like what what is this like you're gonna just mow down everybody especially the doctor what if you need their assistance in the near future that's a pretty ridiculous action to take maybe it follows the the video game or what but yeah that didn't make sense to me i mean i understand uh oh she didn't have a say in the matter you're just gonna kill her right and and if you're yeah if you're gonna do that by the way if you're marlene or whomever or the other person the firefly lady right. Kill Joel too. Once you knock him out, just why did you? Why did it need to come too? So you so you can think him. Like you know, he's a hot hand. Like he's got a reputation. Right. Just kill him. If you're gonna kill the that girl. was a profoundly profoundly stupid decision on her part. If she actually, I mean, she's already willing to go through with killing uh, this girl that she helped raise right. to sixteen years old or whatever, who was a friend's infant that she needed to save some many years ago. Obviously, uh, she should have either killed Joel or just kept him locked up, tied to a wall until the deed was but done, even then, and then deal with him after. He was still trying to go on a rampage. Ah, how could you? We lost another daughter. Like, just yeah, he probably would have attempted some sort of retribution right. after the fact. But like, you certainly don't just like, okay, uh, you crazed murder maniac who I know is a crazed murder maniac who just survived a trip across the country. Which would have required much more crazed murdering. Right. I'm certain of it. I'm just going to send you down the stairs with a couple of guys uh, and and hope for the best. Guys, like, what no are you doing, for him. Like, idiot? They're not respecting his the threat he poses. They're just like, oh, right. move a little faster. I also hated the video game bullshit logic nonsense of like. Yes, and all along we knew we were going to have to do lethal brain surgery on her, and so that's the only way that we can develop any sort of vaccine. Like, that's just bullshit video game plotting that I don't care for whatsoever, and the fact that they just drop it on you in 30 seconds uh, makes it even dumber. Did they explain—so the mother 
didn't have the immunity, but the kid. So gets it seems it? like it seems like she gets cut in the. Pro- <laughs> By the way, uh, not a lot of women in the writers room. I'm guessing. <laughs> Because I have I've witnessed uh, humans do the birthing process a few times. Uh, my wife, uh, spectacular at doing that in terms of uh, just a, a, a true professional getting the job right. done. But you know what? I don't care if you're distracted uh, and killing a mushroom zombie. You know when the human comes out of the hole in your body where there had been no human forced through before, that was not believable. Counterpoint, I have no experience with childbirth in any way, um, but, you know, <laughs> a very excitable situation, right? So she was distracted, right? And also, isn't there a show like on TLC or whatever, like where did this baby come from where like the woman is like of a size to where she doesn't know she's pregnant? For, yeah, like, eight those months? are people who are deeply uninvested in the physical goings on of their own body, right. right? Those are those are self-deluding weirdos. This was not a person who was a self-deluding okay. weirdo. She was aware she was pregnant and in labor and in big trouble. There's no way that baby just even the adrenaline out. of the stupid fucking zombie no. trying to kill me. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> anyway, by the way, HBO. Uh, I think the idea there is that she gets bit or scratched or whatever in the in the struggle and becomes infected and. Then a little bit of the cordyceps gets into the bloodstream through the umbilical cord, but only a tiny little bit. So it's enough for infant Ellie to fight off or or otherwise sort of take in this infection without letting it kill her. And then all the other infections thinks it's already infected. She's already infected and there's no damage. It's like this weird... I guess. I don't really buy that explanation there because she is continually attacked no matter what. So I don't don't know what the... I don't know what the idea is there, but, but whatever. So it, and then to have Joel then just go into rampage mode and be just an absolute assassin and and have all of the sort of video game – you're talking about plot armor earlier. Yeah. Like having the absolute yeah. armor of – like he took the in, invincibility juice uh, <laughs> or whatever for those uh, three and a half minutes. And I didn't care for that either considering this movie had much more realistic violence – or this sure, show yeah. had much more realistic violence through the rest of the season. And then throw in the fact that he tells her a lie at the end, which I don't think is a necessary lie. I think that he could have told her the truth here, which is that they were going to kill you and not give you the, the choice. Right. And there was a there's a hanging piece of dialogue there that I guess maybe they're trying not to bash you over the head with it. But when Marlene says, if given the option, she would have chosen this and you know it, he should have said, then why didn't you ask her? Right. Right. Because the obvious answer there is that there's not any guarantee that she would have chosen. And in in the same way that the trolley problem, the only moral way to solve the trolley problem is to put the track switcher in the hands of the people whose lives are at stake. Right. That's the only true moral out to the trolley problem is to let the person who is sacrificing themselves make that decision to sacrifice themselves. They needed to put that decision in her hands in order for her to make the correct moral choice for her. And nothing that Joel does or Marlene does in that situation can really be justified. Uh, Joel's more so because he is righting the wrong of taking that choice away from right. her. I, I, it sounds like the next season is going to be based off of this l- however well-intentioned Joel thinks he was being with the lie. But – 
at some point, Ellie's going to come to realize that it wasn't the truth. She may already believe that yeah, to be the I think case. She, she already knows right. that that's not the truth. Because it, the story didn't make any sense. And you're right. I, I mean, I guess it would be no story if everything was handled in the right way. Uh, but I will say, this is 20 years in to this fucking shitscape of a world, right, where there's no known cure. If there's a chance... Just kill the kid. Like, what are we talking about here? People die all the time. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, I'm sure next season, it's going to be a lot of these weirdos around trying to bite you. This could have been solved with the death of just one person. Easy does it. Press the yeah. button and kill Joel while you're at it. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of being 20 years in, if you were 20 years into an apocalypse and no maintenance had been done on an elevator for 20 years, would you get on an elevator and expect to not die on the way down? Because I wouldn't. I, I get on these elevators yeah. and I look at the inspection sticker and it's like uh, – Last inspection was three months ago. Next inspection is due three months from now. It's like, wow, they're they're pretty serious about keep uh, the upkeep on these fucking things. Twice a year, they have to get these things inspected. Uh, Twenty years later, I'm not getting on that fucking elevator. You out of your goddamn mind? You know, uh, I think it was uh, John Mulaney. He had a joke where he said, like, when he was young, he thought like uh, there were a lot of like sand dunes or sand tra- what uh, where people just kind of fall into these sand pits right and quicksand yeah quicksand sorry there you go yeah, qu- uh, quicksand featured prominently in all of our imaginations right. in the 80s yeah similarly I, I was when i was younger more concerned about elevators the functioning of elevators i never think twice about elevators like you know it's, i i probably would have just been like 20 years in like ah oh, it's fucking elevator the buttons work <laughs> I'll just get on it because, like, I don't hear any stories about things going wrong with elevators anymore. When's the last time you've heard about tragedy from an elevator? All right, so that ends our uh, our recaps of uh, HBO on Sunday nights. I don't know what's to come for. What's the next uh, HBO prestige? The last season of Succession, although there's a one-week gap, so it starts in a couple Sundays. Are we only two weeks away from Succession? Jesus Christ. Yeah, March 26th or something like that, but, like, I don't know what the, I don't know if there's like a document or some sort of thing. I don't know what's going on in a Sunday night slot this yeah. upcoming week. I don't know. I didn't but watch. Yeah. I didn't watch Station Eleven when that aired last year, and that's another one of these like post-apocalyptic thrillers. Maybe I'll I'll watch that. That's still on HBO Max, uh, I think. I am like six episodes into that. The one problem I have with that, and the reason why I never actually watched, uh, maybe I'll get around to it. Atlanta, like the FX show in Atlanta with. Uh, I don't like when shows or they have like too many standalone episodes where it's like there's no real connection. It's just like whatever. And Station Eleven, there is a very tenuous connection between episodes, but there's like episodes one, four, and six are like amazing, and then the others are just like just a drag to get through. That's and funny. So you, that, you need the connective tissue between episodes. So you, if it's a show, you're not yeah, gonna watch uh, like what, that Poker Face, which is like a Monster of the Week kind of show. Not gonna watch that. It, it didn't have to be exactly that, but at least there's got to be some connection. You can't just be like, "Oh, now I'm just doing drugs in Europe or whatever." Like, what the fuck? Why are you there? You right. were here the other day. I never just, watched the Atlanta. I always meant to. Laurie, it's one of Laurie's favorite. But people shows. say great things about it. Yeah. Right. Anyway, you uh, you got anything else for us tonight, Abe? Nope. Well, I guess that's all we've got for tonight. Then we will talk to you next time. Later. Another short episode. Been if Lori hadn't taken off there, I was I was practically wrapping it up there before she decided she. Uh, <laughs> she thought it was like 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, 
I found the bank stuff all very fascinating. But yeah, what was strange is like despite all of the different uh, things that you may impose, it really does come down to humans behaving like humans do. And I don't know what you could do about that. Yeah, there's there's literally nothing that if you're going to have a fractional reserve banking system, if that if we're going to accept that that is what we want, where you only keep a small percentage of deposits on hand at all times, then you will just always be at risk of uh, a lack of confidence in the banking system just ruining everything. Right. And it's this I wonder if this doesn't become a sort of canary in the coal mine given the fact that we've now seen over the last three years, or less than that, really, you watched what happened with these meme stocks, with the games, what happened with GameStop yeah. and AMC and AMC, Volkswagen, yeah. and then also what happens with these fucking coins, where just by getting enough people talking about a coin on Twitter, you can, you can suddenly increase the value up, by yeah. a 10,000% yeah. overnight or something like that. Yeah. Like the power that these people had to cause a bank run in their fucking WhatsApp chats and then to turn around and use their social media platforms to hold hostage the rest of the entire banking system unless the federal government came in and said we're going to make you whole like that right. we're in we're in like brand new fucking weird territory now if you yeah if you can game that although i will say i mean you you've read up more on this than i have uh what is the upside because i don't think anyone's coming out better like right i mean at, at best it'll it'll just be where they were right but there's no one benefiting from this Right, but if you if you the benefit is that you remove all risk from the situation. You know, if if you no longer have risk, then what you, like no, what it, is the fundamental right, no, concern? That's, no, that's true in a regular context. But if you're egging on this, right? If you were like, let's get in a WhatsApp group or like whatever is on Twitter, uh, just to kind of agitate and cause this to happen, right? Let's say if you're just being a dick. There's no actual opportunity to make money unless I'm missing something. You know, so you got I guess if you got ahead of it and you bought, I don't right. know. I'm not saying, I'm not saying stuff, that it's necessarily a way to make money. What I'm saying is that it is a way to completely eliminate risk from the, from the calculation. Right. And if you've eliminated, right. if there's no downside, if you've completely social, I mean, again, like, and it's weird because it speaks right into Elizabeth Warren's wheelhouse, right? Because yeah. we've we 100% socialized the risk and and yes. 100% privatized the profits. That's a right. terrible system. It is the worst no, of all possible systems. That's true. The, the only problem is that even though that is true, you, I, I just don't know how you can actually just say let's let let the let it. Whatever happens, happens. Like, this is just kind of hands off. And if things get worse, then at some point you'll have to take some sort of intervention, right? So better get ahead of it and then try to develop some sort of strategy to prevent this from happening again. Uh, but just kind of saying like, hey, you have to absorb the cost and then you have this ripple effect. Right. Well, what did Bernanke, uh, Bernanke and the rest of them say after 2008? That the biggest danger, the, the only real moral hazard that we face coming out of this is forgetting. Right. That's what they right. that's what they said, is that, that the real problem is that the only real risk here is that we come out of this not having changed or learned anything. And then this is the situation that we're in, that that we have a massive bank failure and we just come in and we're like, nope, we're just going to pretend that nothing fucking happened here to make sure that nobody right. gets hurt. And that's that is right. exactly what he was warning against uh, 10 years ago. 
Anyway. They should have anticipated the answer to that question. You know, like, we will forget. Basically, when things get easier, people just forget. I don't know if anyone's followed up with the baby formula thing, right? Maybe the same problems persist, but, like, <laughs> right. it's often no, used. They, and it's like- they 100% <laughs> definitely still do exist. You're right about that. Anyway. All right. All right. Good night.